You're listening to Ghost Radio, Station 0.5. It's the devil in the dive, and up next is another rad episode of Bad Band Great Song. We didn't go over this beforehand, so we're just going to go in. We're just going to go in like this. I don't, the bit, today's bit is that there is no bit to open the show. I don't have a bit. Good. It's this band is undeserving of a bit. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I was going to be like, hey, what did you actually do on Halloween since it's actually after Halloween no. now, but we're actually friends. So we've also already actually talked about that IRL. Yeah, we t- like the fake shit we made up was what we're doing anyway. Like I had I had to go to fucking work. <laughs> I did end up going to that queer fetish techno party. It was See, cool. There you go. All right. Yeah. It was actually cool. Good. But it was. It was cool. It's a great time. Um, and I went with Anna, right, which yeah, as I told you before. Beep. Probably. Yeah. We'll get up to that later. But so yeah, today's bit is that there is no bit. And in that way, isn't that actually kind of a bit? How about that? <laughs> well, hi everybody. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. We'll piss you off. This is Batman. Great song. I am still your host, Andrew Patrick Finelli, and with me is also your other still host, Jeremy Cohen. Jerry, how you doing? I bad. <laughs> the band we're focusing our critique on today is "She Wants Revenge" and their song "Tear You Apart." week I was like too tired to try to sing it. This week I just refuse. <laughs> There's a refuse. I'm just not fucking happening. Tear You Apart is the most iconic and defining song in She Wants Revenge's entire catalog. It's also undeniably their biggest song and it's on their biggest album, She Wants Revenge by the band She Wants Revenge. What does she want? Revenge! revenge! What does she want it? Now! Mm, that was fun. She Wants Revenge is a band that never blew up, but still made an impact with their song, Tear You Apart, a title perhaps a bit too close to Love Will Tear Us Apart. And an episode that drove me very close to insanity writing. <laughs> I feel torn <laughs> apart after this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm getting some sick pleasure out of that one. Well, anyway, they're one of those bands, folks. I've legit... Never once met any single human being or even seen one online who claims to be a She Wants Revenge fan. Great way to set the show up today. Same, but, though. <laughs> right, right. But, but they have millions of streams on their key singles. And their biggest single has a massive amount of streams on the YouTubes and the Spotify. We'll, we'll talk about that later. So, 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 so. Before we get there, we are going to examine She Wants Revenge and their song, Tear You Apart, in detail to articulate how and why to make the case 
<laughs> that though she wants revenge is a bad band. Crazy fucking band name too. Tear you apart is a great song. So yeah, this is this is not sure. This is one of those if not sure if we should do this, but we're doing it anyway. <laughs> yeah, we are, man. So lie still and close your eyes because we're gonna fucking tear you apart. As long as you consent. Yeah, consent is key. How about that? Imitation. People say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. (laughs) And people are wrong because people have misunderstood and misquoted the quote. Our friend of the show, Oscar Wilde, (laughs) once wrote, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness. See, that totally makes a lot more sense Doesn't now. It though? That quote always had some negative undertone Absolutely, to it. yes. It's saying that the imitators are, you know. Right. Listen. It's look, still calling you an imitator. Exactly. And that it's reducing your art to flattery. Yeah, which is a kind word for it, actually, in ways. Sure, but yeah. you know, I'm not making art for flattery. Gosh, give me that. Come on, give me that. that was amazing. That was well done. That was well done. Well, so you see, the quote is speaking to the cheapness of imitation, folks, and the raw, overt, and embarrassingly indebted quality of shameless imitation. Iteration. Permutation. There are ways to continue a sound in a style without coming off like imitation. But, something we talk about in the show, when a band lacks a scene, when an artist lacks a guiding North Star, which may be the chuggiest thing I've ever actually said, but I'm still going to stick with it, an internal framework that, framework that defines your output. If you don't have that, this is when we start to fall into imitation. This is what leads to She Wants Revenge and their signature single, Tear You Apart. You're tearing me apart, Andrew! <laughs> We've talked about authenticity a lot on this show, most notably perhaps in episode two of this season, The Bravery Unconditional. People, artists, bands, they can all lack authenticity for various reasons. That's part of, yeah, yeah right? That's just many reasons you could not be authentic. Um, but that's part, that, 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 that multiplicity of reasons for lack of authenticity, that's part of what, quote, critics of authenticity and genuinity, that, that label desires for realness as gatekeeping. That's part of what they're using for, for that accusation, that, that wanting authenticity, wanting genuinity is gatekeeping, right? They're, they're, and I get that. I get that. I get that frustration, you know, due to there being no one answer to what makes someone or something authentic or inauthentic. Yeah, that could be maddening. Uh, It can maybe even feel like the goalpost is being moved. Yeah, I think a big part of it is how much like deceits in the artist's work. You know, what what story do they tell as an artist versus what their actual story is? That's a great point. I mean, that's just a small part of it. But you know, if if you're able to do the research, and you know, it's. yeah. That's a very good point. I think being purposeful, like Bob Dylan obviously told a lot of other people's stories. Great folk singers right. tell other people's stories, but you got to be a great storyteller to do that. And it's clear you're telling somebody else's story. I, I like your point because it's very interesting. Perhaps it's a defining thing for inauthentic. You yourself, you may be trying to tell your own story in a song, but it's so obvious to the listener that this is not your story. Like yeah, yeah, you are, exactly. co- your your role. You're playing. You're doing a role playing game right now. Totally. That is, right. That's a very good point, Jerry. I love that. That's good stuff. But listen, if you're if if you're one of those folks out there who is uh, upset that people want authenticity, they want genuine stuff from their artists, and you think that that's a gatekeeping bent to be on, I contend that being upset 
with the uh, that complexity of that there is no one answer to why somebody may be inauthentic, that, if you're upset about that, that I contend is intellectually lazy. People have asked us, right? So what makes a, a band bad and, uh, and a song great? And the real answer is there is no one answer. And, you know, people don't really like that. They want sound bites, not conversations. Yeah, don't forget everything we're talking about on this show is our opinions. Absolutely. You know? I mean, Absolutely. You know, except for cited facts that we're basing our opinions off of, but but that's what's so special about this. There is no blanket definition of what bad is. Agreed. We're talking about music and art. Exactly. And it changes from person to person. It, yes, that's, that's how we try to approach this show too, very case by case. And, and just like there is no one answer to what makes something bad and something great, there is no one answer when it comes to assessing and feeling out the authenticity of an entity. Let's, let's look at someone current who is analogous to She Wants Revenge. Machine Gun Kelly. We're, uh, we're, we're also going to talk about Olivia Rodrigo, but let's, let's, start oh. with, let's start with Kelly. It's very valid to call Machine Gun Kelly a poser and inauthentic. But Travis Barker is his drummer. Yeah. And he's got an anarchy <laughs> tattoo. <laughs> Right by his belly button. That's, uh, yeah, and that's how that's how that's how you know. That's how you know he's real. That's real. No, we loved we love Travis. I'm not a Blink One Eighty Two fan, but we love we love Mr. Barker. He's obviously a very important fixture. But but here is my argument, and it, it has nothing to do with genre hopping. And I also want to be clear: this isn't a discussion about whether Machine Gun Kelly is good or bad. We're just going to talk about how maybe somebody might argue for authenticity. So here's the argument, and again, it has nothing to do with genre hopping. Something we we'll see that she wants revenge is done a little bit. So when it comes to pop music, nobody cares who wrote your song. When it comes to literally every other genre, for the most part, from rap to rock, it's kind of expected that you write your songs, and, and not necessarily by committee or consensus. Maybe, if, again, if you're more of a pop star, sure, and rappers have features with each other, but typically ghostwriters are frowned upon. And hey, let's look at a pop star. Nobody's really mad at Miley Cyrus for cosplaying as a rock star right now, because she's still positioning herself a as a pop star. Machine Gun Kelly, on the other hand, seems to, especially with the festival he's been playing lately, all the like metal and rock festivals, he's really positioning himself as the next part of the greater conversation of rock and punk. And in ways, he now is, whether you like it or not. But it is not comparable to a kid who grew up listening to Ramones records, then discovered Minor Threat, then actually went to Fugazi shows and then started their own band that would play shows that would then inspire the next kid whose life was saved by punk rock. You can tell Machine Gun Kelly is, is hyped on what he's doing. That's great. And he, he looks great doing it. I think he's hot as fuck. But you can't... Oh, this is gonna, I didn't write any horniness into this one, but it's going to come out in ways. It's going to come out. But I'll, you, you, can tell he's, you can tell that what he's doing is the work of a group. Not a band, but a group of producers, other songwriters, and marketing know-how. Branding. Yeah, the branding part is huge. I've watched a bunch of his videos, and the vibe is this like uh -huh. super energetic punk rock thing. But right, then right, the right. songs are all like shiny pop songs, and there's yeah. like no punk rock in sight. But they're like fucking headbanging, and people are like moshing, and he's like singing. It's honestly like a K-pop approach to like let's make a pop punk star. And, but and you know what? There's a guy out there. Um, Lauren, who's on that black label, I think a K-pop star, and he's like, he's like their prince. He plays every fucking instrument. 
Like on his records, he plays every fucking instrument. He's gorgeous and he's also awesome. His songs are like paper thin, but they sound cool as fuck. Right. They sound cool as fuck. And I, I think they're doing a little better than Mr. Kelly, the, the, the calculated put together punk rocker. I mean, but again, folks, anything we just said, this all, this, none of this makes Machine Gun Kelly quote bad. We're not here to talk about that. This is just an example of how a conversation about authenticity could be had. So moving on. I mean, that anarchy tattoo is definitely authentic. <laughs> That's a real tattoo. It's a real tattoo. <laughs> it's a real tattoo. <laughs> well, let's, let's look at Olivia Rodrigo. Let's not, maybe. <laughs> this episode's really fucking, you're trying to kill me on this one. I swear to God. <laughs> hey, folks, anybody, you cannot like her. When I say you can't call her inauthentic. Or you could just not know anything about her like me. <laughs> Elvis Costello is a fan. But anyway, she oozes <laughs> so much authenticity and sincerity that she's surely repellent to hipsters everywhere, which is funny because that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying you kind of got to appreciate about her. And this speaks to the douchiness of being a paint-by-numbers hipster, by the way, which I'm not saying I'm not in some ways, but I, I try to be like at least paint-by-my-own-numbers. You know, if you can't look past your own taste... Maybe you're not looking properly. That's all. I don't. I mean, know. I'd be down. I've just never heard the name. That's fair. I mean, hey, let's not now, but let's let's bump some Olivia Rodrigo later, some driver's license and shit. But anyway, listen, her record was made. This is what I want to get to. Her record was made was made mostly by two people: her and Daniel Negro from Long Island's as tall as lions, whom I saw by the way at a fucking um. I'm pretty sure Massapequa High School, Battle of the Bands, back in like 2003. I'm not from Long Island, folks. My grandparents lived in Long Island. I'm from New York City, born and raised. Anyway, I thought they fucking sucked. Just to, <laughs> they looked terrible. They won. But boy, holy fuck. They had this like, um, ooh, like we are emo U2 energy. And I just legit thought that they were fucking terrible, man. But here we go. Okay. You know what's funny? Millennial like pop punkers from back in the day are actually like low kind, low key, kind of like making hits today. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And yeah, let's not forget about Travis Barker. Right, exactly. It's insane. It's, it's insane. Every song. Yeah, pop punk is in the yo pop punk is in the background right now, pulling some strings. It's kind of funny, but anyway, beyond that. Rodrigo also has multiple songs where she is 100% writing credits. I imagine on her next album, which I'm sure won't be rushed, will probably feature even more 100% writing credits from Rodrigo. In fact, in November 2021, I'm calling it. I expect to see more and more 100% writing credits on each subsequent album. Aside from maybe the singles like designed to destroy pop charts, I guess. I right, but that's unavoidable at that level. Exactly. That's very true. And she's hit that level and she's done it pretty much on her own, which is impressive. So anyway, if that preamble felt a little more like a ramble and you're wondering why we even addressed it at all, don't worry. We'll get there. <laughs> Today's threads will weave throughout the notion of authenticity and its importance with connecting to and with an audience. Audience. So <laughs> she, she Wants Revenge's story starts with two DJs, producers, people who have strong ideas about sounds, but... No scene to ground them. No ecstatic, immediately experienced culture that cultivated their output that we're here to discuss today. Though, as we're about to see, they, they were actually teens in the 80s and were legit there when the stuff that influenced them was happening. So, I don't know. I think his pitchfork doesn't give a fuck about that, but I think that counts for something. This doesn't count for too much, but it counts... <laughs> 
Because her sobs said. Hey, but it's like James Murphy said, man. Like, I was there. I was there. I was there. These men have authentic impulses and desires. I give them that. It's the timing, the execution, and the context that makes their authenticity questionable. And ultimately, the output, the music, of course. Um, and of course, again, with that output, the seeming lack of an original point of view to make that sound truly their own. But back to the past. The 1980s, a pivotal decade that has determined much of how pop culture would play out in the coming decades. At some point in the 80s, because love that accurate time frame, these two DJs would meet. Justin Warfield and Adam Braven. Allison Meter reports for the Santa Barbara Independent on October 17th, 2006. The two members of She Wants Revenge initially met as teenagers in the 1980s. Braven was DJing at a San Fernando party and caught Warfield's attention by playing Easy E's Boys in the Hood. The two bonded over their mutual affection for the gangster rap anthem and became comrades in hip hop You don't have to say it like that. Say it like it's fucking written? What do you mean say it like that? The gangster rap anthem. No, I'm just busting. How would you like me to say it, Jeremy? Do you want to show the folks Do you want to show the folks at home how to say gangster rap, Jerry? Like it was a part of the rest of the sentence. Give me your best pronunciation of the word gangster rap, Jeremy. The two bonded over their mutual affection for gangster rap anthem. For the gangster rap anthem. <laughs> yeah, now I fucked it up. You're well right. done, well done. I'm not reading a lot. As the next 20 years passed, Warfield <laughs> developed his skills as a West Coast MC. In 1991, he released the Yo! MTV Raps approved <laughs> single, Season of the Vic. Followed by the 1993 Prince Paul produced full-length album, My Field Trip to Planet Nine. Braven continued his career as a club DJ and producer, collaborating with Most Def and occasionally sipping Cristal with P. Diddy. That's fun. That's such a good quote. Yeah. Well, that's a neat and tidy little paragraph there with a lot to unpack. So let's zoom in a bit. Justin Warfield and Adam Braven met at a party in the 80s. Gotcha. Cool. Okay. Braven was spinning some boys into hood and Warfield knew he had to say what up to the DJ. That's quite an origin story. <laughs> Isn't it though? Horrible. By 1991, Warfield had released his rap debut, the single Season of the Vic. It was a down-tempo kind of conscious rap release and you know what? Let's listen to a little bit of it. <sighs> Some people they trip, some flamming, some flip flips. Say they chat a chip like a foolish type of rip. rip. Why do they be doing this? Trying to irritate y'all. All up in the cooling when they don't know the flavor. Get on your business when they don't know the time. time. So I'm freaking this little daddy of a rhyme. Letting some know what it's like to watch shows. Time makes tickets to the younger who flows. Time and time again, another takes a shovel. Digs in your yard, get into it, causing trouble. Disrupt the flow, I do, I know the green little hands. The cookie jar, even brothers and your friends. Some ain't like the rest. Rest, son, you gotta test. test. It's over season of the thing, it has to be addressed. It's sad and depressing, but just a bag of truth. Yeah. One who doesn't have a take from the ones who do. And maybe vice versa, and the other way around. The rich brother thinking is the fact that I found. True. You gotta watch your back, man, get yourself together. Cause fix will do the job in any type of weather. Season of the thing, the season of the thing. Funny that it's the guy who's that's the guy who goes, I wanna fucking tear you apart. Right. right? You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, folks, listen, listen, I'm 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 gonna make jokes here and there, so this may get complicated, but please don't get it twisted. I don't think 
genre hopping. Obviously, I'm making a joke at the expense of going from being a rapper to saying, I want to fucking... I don't think genre hopping has anything to do with authenticity. I will never make that case. Perhaps foolishly, uh, I will continue to chase the ever-changing, complex, case-by-case, context-dependent, ineffable, and very indeterminate explanations for why someone or something is authentic or inauthentic. But I would like to call attention, at least with jokes, to how jarring it is to go from season of the Vic to tear you apart. Bowie is someone I think about often when it comes to genre hopping. Bowie always sounded like Bowie, you know? No matter what sound he was mining and what pre-existing elements he was purloining and repurposing, Bowie always had this thread, an, an essential and defining element that ran throughout everything he did. I don't really think you can tell me that that is the case with Justin Warfield. Warfield's sense of aesthetics and the sounds he made went through such a dramatic transformation. It, it doesn't come off like an artist growing. It it's, comes off as like a teenager trying hard to discover who they are. But, but one, no offense. I do not mean that in... And a mean way, just a critical observation. And again, it's not like I'm questioning the authenticity of the band based on that. Not at all. Yeah, but I mean, you have to acknowledge there's absolutely nothing linking the two projects. No, and there's really nothing that links any of his projects, even the next release, which is a rap album, but still it points in something, a different direction. Let's, let's talk about this. 1993, Warfield kept at it with the rap stuff and he released the album, My Field Trip to Planet Nine. I guess he was on that Anunnaki flow even before Absol. I do love Nubira. I fucking loved that song. But anyway, for real, with this album title, we can actually start to see glimpses of Warfield's interests in dark, strange, and esoteric things. Ooh, heard him. <laughs> Just listening to all that goth boy music, that sad boy goth yeah, music in the 80s. So. Yeah, well, you see, both goths and those who want to believe are certainly fascinated by arcane information, hidden knowledge, and the revelation of a stranger element in our reality. These are threads, and perhaps some proof of how unfair it is to even question the authenticity of this group, of Justin Warfield. But as we'll see, as, as you'll see, folks... I like it both ways. Always. Each and every way. I rarely think there is one answer to something or anything. Except for math. Let's, Ex- let's not be fucking ridiculous. There's, yeah, I mean, you know. Some things, some things are math. Okay. Some things are math. Yeah, some things there are answers to. There's one answer. That's, that's very true. I, can't, I cannot argue that. The band's impulses <laughs> are authentic. And that's another thing I can't argue against, but we'll argue for. But it's the execution and context that calls it all into question, as we've touched on. And yes, my field trip to Planet Nine was produced by Prince Paul, a.k.a. The Undertaker, a.k.a. Chest Rockwell, hailing from Amityville, Long Island. Tell all your friends. Uh, The Undertaker like the wrestler? (laughs) No, I... No. No, No, fuck that guy, by the way. Not The Undertaker, but the man, Mark Calloway. Fuck you, dude. Anyway... Next up oh. for Warfield was the release of 1995's The Justin Warfield Supernaut Album. There is very little info available on this album, but it's definitely another curious landmark in Warfield's sonic journey. The album is a full-on psych rock album. This would have fit very well in a show with Brian Jonestown Massacre, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, and the Dandy Warhols. It's actually kind of cool. 
but his voice is just so terrible. <laughs> it's so bad here. Well, let's give the audience a little taste of, of, of this new direction for Warfield, and let's listen to a little bit of album opener Glimmer. Also, this song is great evidence for the case that rock and roll songs shouldn't be pushing the five-minute mark. Oh, interesting. This shit got boring. Is there not one long rock song that you love? I mean, you have a fucking Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, there's always the outliers to the rule, but, you know. Sure. Uh, this, this, This band. Ain't it? Ain't it. I got you. No, I'm not going to argue that. Well, after that diversion, Warfield would do some more stylistic dress-up. Next for Warfield was One Inch Punch's debut album in 1996, Tao of the One Inch Punch. One Inch Punch, that's such a hard name for me to say. One Inch Punch was an ultimately mediocre, but actually kind of innovative industrial sort of trip poppy thing that also got a bit psychedelic. And again, I think mostly suffers from his vocals. Wow, you were coming for my guy tonight on The Voice. I mean... You really don't like his vocals at all, huh? Like on anything. He doesn't like his vocals. (laughs) How about... The fact that it changes every five minutes. Oh. If he fucking actually sounded the same, if he liked what the fuck he was doing, he would stick with it. But he hates himself. (laughs) 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 Holy shit. This is good stuff, dude. No, actually, I like that. Wow. What an interesting analysis for why his... His voice so dramatically changes on every release. I mean, yeah, right. I don't think he's found himself. Yeah, how are you? How am I supposed to like it as a fan if he's just like, actually, nope, next? Wow, that's amazing. Well, god damn, that's a good point, dude. Let's talk about that later when we get to why the band is bad. But let's wrap up this point about one inch punch. It was a duo of Warfield and oh, Gianni Garofalo, fucking paisan. Any relation to Janine? The 90s own Janine Garofalo. That's one great thing the 90s really gave us, Janine Garofalo. I don't know if I don't, I don't think they're related. Um, that's amazing, though. That's so funny. I like. I never think about Janine Garofalo being a paisan either. I really hope that's so funny. I like that. I feel uh, like we I, should do. We should do bad actor, great movie. That, oh wow, wow. We got just so many, so many spinoff shows that we'll never do. Yeah, could you guys help? <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry. <laughs> No, it's fine. It's we don't good. have any time, guys. We'd like to do more. <laughs> also, One Inch Punch 
basically what it sounds like. I gotta finish. Yeah, yeah keep going. It sounds like it sounds like people who like rap who've also heard Nine Inch Nails, which I mean, I, I, right. listen, that sounds cool. I, I might as well say it now because it, it's definitely gonna, you know, come up when we're speaking about it later. Like. Uh, I think if Justin Warfield were a Zoomer and making music now, I genuinely believe that he'd be zeitgeisty as fuck. We, we'll touch on that more later. But in an era when, like, authenticity is of little importance, not making a judgment there, just, like, of very little importance, as long as you nail a look and you get that sound and execute it perfectly and create an easily understood vibe, we're in that era. And I, I think Warfield would be doing well. It's interesting how authenticity does go in and out of fashion. Wait, yes, and we're very much in a phase right now. We're like, like a post nineties, post grunge. It's like no, no. If it's like yo, if somebody's having fun, cool. Who gives a right, fuck? Right, right, right. And I get that, but like they can still live like authenticity and like oh, they're just having fun. Those two things can exist in the same world, and we can want both at different times from different artists in different ways you know yeah i was thinking about it i think it's like in the, the because of the case of the internet like in the early internet you had this opportunity to do all this research about people and see how authentic they were and that right, now right, there's just right. like too much fucking information that i'm not even gonna look up olivia rodrigo fucking ever <laughs> you know what i mean there's a lot of noise to cut through well i mean it's the same thing we're yeah. talking about there's people on instagram with like nine million followers who i've never I've heard never of. heard of them right never heard of them right 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 so how could you have the opportunity how could you have the time to care about an individual artist that you love to even go through the work to see how authentic they are? Right. Whatever your definition of authentic may be, blah, 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 blah. No, very true. Very true. We're just in like a post-everything era. It's like... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Things are a little too... Right. Meta. There's... Best meme I saw was it said metal, and then it, they gave him like long hair and a fucking metal beard. It was oh, so good. good. That's good, Mr. Barbecue Sauce. But let's move uh, on. Perhaps one of the biggest one inch. This is the, after this one inch punch is dead. Done. We're done talking about it. The perhaps the biggest thing one inch punch did was a single for Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet movie, which I fucking love. Pretty piece of flesh. Let's listen to a little bit of that song right now. Justin Warfield. What about his partner? And she wants revenge. What about that guy? Oh yeah. What about his better half? His better half. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, that's going to come into question later. Well, during this time, about 1995 and 1996, DJ Adam Braven was, as astute listeners will recall, he was the DJ in the band. 
crazy town. Uh, maybe not such a better half. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That's right. Adam Braven, a.k.a. Adam 12, was Crazy Town's DJ before DJ AM took over. And in fact, prior to this, Adam Braven worked as Prince's personal DJ at Prince's LA Club Glam Slam. That story is detailed in a pretty poorly written piece by Braven himself for Shondaland. It was published on June 7th, 2019. If you would like to find it. I think I'm good on that. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. It's okay. I read, it, I read it for the both of us and let me tell you, I'm not happy about it. But anyway, yeah. moving on. Now, what happens next is kind of unclear. Neither men have terribly well-documented lives. Braven absolutely stayed busy, yes, uh, but he also stayed a bit low-key. But Warfield, his life is very, very much untold, and we just don't know much about it at all. Yeah, that's kind of a big red flag there. If <laughs> seriously, if there Yeah, that Jesus guy disappeared for like 30 years, and he's kind of fucked. Wait, I'm, I lost you. Which you don't know Jesus about that? guy? No, literally Jesus. There's like a gap in the Bible when he, like nobody, there's like no account for Jesus between childhood uh, and coming back at like 30. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. I'm not, whatever. I'm, no, I'm more of an Old Testament kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to derail your point. No, no, no. Well, well basically my point was that like, <laughs> if there wasn't an interviewer or, or who cared to ask or a documentarian who cared to document, you know, there's definitely a whole lot of uninteresting stuff in there in <laughs> that point, p- yeah, point exactly. of time, you know, it's like. It's not too much if no one asked him. Right. And then, like, someone probably asked him and then, like, didn't even write it down, you know? Like, didn't make the article. <laughs> That's incredible. Didn't even write it down. Just like the idea of a journalist being there, being like, yeah, uh-huh. Oh, yeah, cool. Right, right. right. Okay, okay, okay. So let's talk about the She Wants Revenge Man, yeah, right? Right. Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I guess let's talk about She Wants Revenge because eventually this is, this, is, this is a good segue. The script actually, the script called for that. But eventually the boys who connected over hip-hop in the 80s would somehow reconnect in 2004 in Southern California. So Cal, dude. Hell yeah. It is during this time that the two men would rekindle their love for post-punk, goth, icy synths, Mm. that was hard to say, dance beats, and carefully distorted guitars. Both men, being industry men, no doubt took note of the early 2000s burgeoning garage rock, post-punk, and indie rock revolutions. This is the concrete starting point for She Wants Revenge. In fact, some articles do pitch it back a little further, like 2003, but whatever. Over the next two some odd years, the band would refine their sound and sort of their presentation. Well, they never really nailed that. They would also, over these two years, work their industry connections. That's right. She Wants Revenge is one of those bands. <laughs> Said that twice now in completely different contexts. They were in the industry <laughs> before they even cut a record. Sounds like fucking witchcraft to me. <laughs> yeah, let's drown them and see if they float. <laughs> and their debut record came out on... No comment. Well, it's uh, hard to say. I, I Honestly, I just don't remember. And allmusic.com claims it came out on January 31st, 2006. But the iTunes store... Throws back a full year earlier. That's that's right. Check the iTunes store right now, folks. And She Wants Revenge self-titled debut is certified, is credited rather, as coming out January 1st, 2005. Well, whatever. <laughs> it came out initially via Fred Durst's Flawless Records, which listeners may remember from our Puddle of Mud episode. And then it came out Perfect Kiss, both of which are subsidiaries of Geffen, which 
was and is owned by the Universal Music Group family of labels. Oh, what a happy family. Isn't it though? Yeah. But again, this is a great example of if someone cared, there wouldn't be confusion <laughs> on the internet about when the fucking album came out. That's yeah. like not, that's not like a, th- like when did it arrive at Tower? When did they put it on the shelves? It's in, Dude, it's insane. It's very simple. This is the first time I've run into this when doing, like doing the research. Yeah. The what show. did it say on the poster? Yes. Cause no one fucking cares about this band. <laughs> you were on fire today, my friend. Very spicy. Very spicy. I'm sitting next to you, like getting a little schwitzy already. Just, just like being by your heat. Yeah. Let's repack this bowl over here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so tired. I guess this is a good this is a good <laughs> time for that sound effect to happen. Yeah. <laughs> she wants revenge's self-titled debut is unquestionably the band's high point. Both the album and its biggest single, the song we're here to discuss, is the biggest the band ever got. This was a perfect period of just Confluence, just things coming together. Society was in the right place for a band like She Wants Revenge to hit with the folks it was targeted at. Again, I kind of think it could work now in a different way, handled differently. Well, anyway, as their current YouTube streams and also Spotify streams suggest, they really are a band that would have benefited from the culture and the type of internet we have now. When I say their streams far outweigh their actual chart and sales success, that's actually kind of an understatement. Right, because who would actually pay for this music, right? That would be insane. <laughs> I bought this album when it came out. <sighs> yeah. You bought Astro Lounge. I did buy Astro Lounge. Thank you. That song's actually fun, though. Oh, my God. We... Your fun's not my fun. <laughs> there you go. We have different ideas of fun. Yep. Well, anyway, Tear You Apart, for example has 21 million streams on YouTube. God. The, al- <laughs> the album, oh man, it's from, however, only has sold about 294,000 copies. It hasn't even gone gold. It did respectably on the charts, but as we'll look at later, I'm being perhaps a bit kind of gen- 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 generous there. Still, 21 million views on YouTube is nothing to disregard. After the release of their self-titled debut, She Wants Revenge embarked on a tour with Placebo, something that surely would help to cement their authenticity as goth rock stalwarts and not just sonic tourists, right? Yeah, it certainly helps. It doesn't seal the deal, but yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess, you know, not quite actually, because you see, the band themselves clearly showed that they understood quite well why they have skeptics out there in that independent.com article that we referenced earlier, Allison Meter writes, quote, we aren't going to pull any kind of 180 on our next album, (laughs) Warfield told me by phone. This is our sound and we aren't changing it. Yeah, all right, buddy. Right. Okay. That's a funny quote. It's like, you know, when you see some like jacked up juice head on Instagram or TikTok talking about how they are not quite, they're quote, natural or natty. Meanwhile, none of their impressionable, mostly young following even understands what steroids are. So it's like, why do you need to proclaim to them that you're natural? It's sus. You know, you're exposing yourself and your own awareness of your inauthent- inauthenticity. That's where I'm coming from. And that's what that quote kind of says to me. Yeah, I mean, this is coming from a guy who's like just released rap albums. There was that one psych rock album. Oh, right, sure, whatever. But it's literally like a, 
baby, like a like you're trying to like walk a toddler home, and they're like asleep, and they're like, "I'm not tired." It's like you're fucking asleep, dude. <laughs> well, <laughs> as you just spoke to, the fact is, and this is this statement of his is it's made by somebody who knows that his resume doesn't really clearly lead to where he is now. If you just look at it, making the type of music he makes now. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and speaking about not doing a 180 with the next record, she wants revenge. His sophomore album is unquestionably a sequel. Let's say to their debut, everything about it from the cover to the sounds just scream. If you like the last record, this is more of the same. And frankly, that's an understatement. Yeah, it really seems like they're just trying to prove something. Like, he was just like, look, I could do the same thing again. It was a little too much continuity yeah. with this album. <laughs> I mean, I'm a fan of continuity, man. But anyway, This Is Forever, the follow-up to She Wants Revenge, was released January 1st, 2007, again, according to iTunes, and October 9th of the same year, according to allmusic.com. <laughs> Love it. That's so insane. The entire internet... For the entire existence of the internet, no one's been like, all right, we'll figure this out. Yeah, nobody, no, nobody, no one cares. nobody sussed it out. No one's like, all right. Nobody's trying to figure that one out at all. They'll leave the I mean, I am, but I don't have the resources. That's what it yeah. is. Well, anyway, it really is the exact same record as the previous one, just with fewer memorable songs and less novel charm. There are some surprises. Track What I Want is... Some super stiff funk, and It's Just Begun features an acoustic guitar, something that something that should not have happened. I don't I don't wanna the, the great Finn McKenty once said, You hear you hear acoustic guitar in a new metal album, it just ain't it. And I'm gonna follow up with that. Uh he that was his, he said that on his review of Limp Bizkit's new record still sucks. But um <laughs> Finn Finn McKenty, the punk rock NBA, shouts out, shout outs, love that guy. But anyway, I, I'm gonna say you, you hear the acoustic guitar on the post punk record, and it's not it's not necessarily it's not it's not necessarily a good sign of things to come. And it's just begun, it's definitely not a great song. So yeah. Thank God we're not here to talk about that tonight. One thing that is more prominent. Warfield's fake British accent, as other critics like to refer to it, it's 100% affected and put on. As Jerry talked about, the guy does not necessarily use his own voice. We don't know what his voice really is. Who knows what his voice yeah. really is? Right. So here he's definitely being a bit of a character, and she wants revenge. And I almost kind of wish he leaned into that more. Not necessarily more with his vocals, just with everything regarding the band. I don't know. I don't know if it's fair to say he's doing a British accent, by the way, but he's definitely, he's absolutely doing a bit of Peter Murphy phrasing in, in Peter Murphy's English. But anyway, just pitched down to Ian Curtis. Well, again, Ian Curtis's English. Ian Curtis's baritone register. But listen, call it whatever you want. This put-on pronunciation of his is certainly very more apparent on this record than the last. Yeah, and honestly, it's kind of a relief to hear compared to the rest of the vocal work he's done throughout his career. You like these vocals more than than yeah. other? Oh yeah. Oh okay. Well, I think that like he was he like figured this one is like a way to to mask all his imperfections. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? He could like kind of rap, but it didn't need to be rhymy or be fast. It could be like this low choppy thing. There wasn't like vocal rage like there was on the psyche shit 
where he was like right. getting it to different registers. There's, there's a lot of like, production on his all of She Wants Revenge too. We'll talk about that later. Oh, for right? sure, for sure. Yeah, that's an enormous part of it also. But he got to like keep in this low register. Right. It's kind of easy for anyone. It's such, a, it's such a character heavy voice It is almost like putting on a mask Oh yeah You know yeah. what I mean And it's just a different mask He keeps switching about Right and Folks if you remember our Fozzie episode The artist and the mask Yeah <laughs> That's and the closest the, I get to ASMR And Stur- the Sturgis Rally And the Sturgis Rally Oh there have been a lot of th- We're not talking about Sturgis today folks Don't worry but anyway, yeah, she wants revenge. Played she the wa- Sturgis rally. That would be been, been incredible. That would have been fucking hilarious. Oh my! The only thing funnier would be like like me showing up to the Sturgis rally and being like, "Hey, hey, we're going next year." Oh lord. Well, anyway, this is <laughs> she wants revenge's sophomore album. This is forever. It's it's. I'm saying the same, same similar things to this to a lot today. This it's one of those albums. What at all? Just like its predecessor, it has 14 songs on it. Just why? 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 Why do artists do this? I'm sorry, but like very, 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 very few of you artists out there actually have these 14, 17, and 23 track albums in you. Please, all of you. Just stop it. We need more like artists than bands just cutting albums that are like 10, maybe 11, 12 tracks tops. Yeah, and half the album is pushing five minute songs yeah. are up. The, the whole thing's almost an hour long. It's, rough. it's a lot of bad music <laughs> in one place. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is Forever's two singles written in Blood and True Romance. Great movie, by the way, Christian Slater. Uh, Patrick Anyway, failed to chart the oh. very... You know, have you ever seen, never, never seen the movie True Romance? Uh, yeah, I just... I, I thought we were talking about music. I was so confused. Talking never about mind. a lot of things. We're talking about a lot of things. Yeah. That's what's nice. The very, about that? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Isn't that nice? Yeah, interesting stuff. The very next year, She Wants Revenge released the Save Your Soul EP on... <laughs> Either May 13th or October 4th, 2008. iTunes has really ruined this whole thing for me. Yes, it's just like an iTunes thing. What the fuck is going on with it, iTunes here? It, it stops eventually. But like. Steve Jobs should have never died. <laughs> if he did die, that would be the correct date. It's, I, you might be right. Fucking bullshit. <laughs> oh, man. Well, the EP is interesting. It's not. Awful, but it doesn't grab you. I think she wants revenge having such a strong stylistic filter kind of hinders them in a way. And we hear it here. They want to explore. And I, I, I typically, listen, I typically think that rules for art are great. The confines allow you to explore in a focused way. Rules, rules define things, don't they? Hmm. How about that? But it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't. It, it definitely doesn't always work. Let's look at a band like the Ravenettes. I, I really, I actually really love the Ravenettes, despite them not being very great. But so they recorded entire albums in a single key, changing keys and themes with each album. This was cool, but it also had diminishing returns. I, I don't think creatively, mind you, but, but certainly commercially. Yeah, creatively it had to be fulfilling, but fans would have to be somehow as deeply inspired by your incredibly Mm -hmm. specific concept and be super into that concept and fully ready for the ride for that to really work out. Agreed, and they didn't catch people's imaginations like that. Yeah, because it's not that interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then we have the White Stripes. Hell yeah. That we can agree on. 
A band that thrived, frankly, by forcing itself to play within extreme confines. But frankly, that just proves how exceptional the combo of Jack and Meg White were. Even White himself has never applied such, such strict rules to a project ever again. Sure, they're there, rules, but not to the same degree. And nothing's he's, nothing he's done since the White Stripes has reached the same level of, of absolute cultural saturation. Again, all this just speaks to how difficult it is to innovate and expand while preserving the integrity of the rules that you've created. Right. The White Stripes were some kind of amazing magic. That Aren't shit they? really just worked. They figured really something out. Yeah. I should drum to that too. <laughs> I'm a, you should. I'm trying to learn how to play drums, guys. <laughs> I like we're getting a little more personal with the show as we go on, buddy. That's good stuff. Yeah, there's something about me. We're really- <laughs> I don't know how to play drums, all right? <laughs> really letting the folks in really letting the folks at home in there, man. I love it. <laughs> anyway. I really think that She Wants Revenge did the best that they could here. On this rather overlooked EP, Warfield's nearly reckless bluesy wail on Save Your Soul kind of shows that. They were shooting for it. They were going for it. The lead track, Sugar's Shuffling Beat and Build, also shows that. They were trying to do something here. But again, it was overlooked. Didn't really have an impact. She Wants Revenge would stray even further from the path with their next release, the EP, up and down. This was released September 22nd, 2009, which is finally, finally not a date that I find being disputed anywhere. Wait, that's funny because I just, I was doing a little bit of research and I saw a Get different- the fuck out of here. Yeah, I saw a different release date than that. And the one that I read was- um, Are you really doing this to me right now? Yeah, it was released. Wait, hang on. I got it right. No, nah, no, nah, I'm just kidding. It's- Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> I got it right Ooh. here. Heckin' boomed me there, man. The CP. Oh, 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 the CP. The CP up and down. The CP. Oh, oh. The CP is like they started listening to Sexy Back Era Timberlake, which is crazy. And there, there may actually be a reason why it sounds that way, which we kind of skipped over, folks. Let's go back into time a little bit. In 2007, She Wants Revenge was on a track with Timbaland. Time from the album... Shock value. Wow. Yep. There's some shock value. Right? Shock value, which, by the way, folks, is Timbaland's second solo album. How about that? So, She Wants Revenge clearly can be heard on that track. And in my opinion, Timbaland's brand of hit making made its way into She Wants Revenge's sound once they began work on the CP. I'm not, obviously, not, not to the same degree of success. But I you listen, folks, listen to this fucking EP and tell me you don't hear Timbaland in these songs. It's ridiculous. It's goofy. It's goofy, but it's there. Anyway, the EP Up and Down is them making a dance record. A hundred percent. More than ever. It's as if the short-lived genre of Electro Clash were way more goth and lasted longer and tried to cross over with more mainstream pop rights, pop songwriting conventions and, and mainstream dance music elements. It's so funny. They were like, for our next album, we're not going to do a 180, but the <laughs> next EP, we're going full electro shit band. 
Electroshiz. Electroshiz is my new favorite genre. <laughs> <laughs> the problem, though, that they ran into is that this stylistic shift somehow makes them even more generic and unidentifiable. If not for Warfield's specific rendition of the brassy and baritone post-punk voice, I don't think that this would be recognized as she wants revenge at all. Well... Oh boy, how about this, folks? On May 23rd or the 24th, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm not even, I'm just, I'm done with, I'm just, I'm done with time. Man, I don't, I don't get it. Anyway, oh, May 23rd or 24th, 2011, She Wants Revenge released what would be their final album, Valley Heart. It's a concept album about the San Fernando Valley and the folks who live there. It was released via 5-7 Music, a subsidiary of 11-7 label, label group, a true privately owned indie label, though it has had distribution via Universal Music Group and Sony Red. Wait, like Sony Red the cameras? <laughs> That's weird. Ah, <laughs> oh, man. Well, it's a cinematic album. Oh, there you go. That explains Sony Red. <laughs> Cameras. Yeah, cinematic. Cameras. It's scintillating Cameras. and it stands out in ways that previous She Wants Revenge albums kind of did not actually. The music no longer sounds like an attempt to be post-punk grave robbers. This, however, is She Wants Revenge through and through, thanks to Warfield's vocals and also the dark, dramatic, and lusty nature of the storytelling. And it's worth noting, it's a 10-track album. Strong choice. It's an okay record. It starts really strong, but for my taste anyway, it kind of loses steam after track two. Tracks three through five definitely meander. They lose me. They definitely lose me. Things do pick up sort of, uh, though, in the latter half, which is nice. But all that said, Valley Heart did worse than each previous release. It's also so much more poppier. Than it is. They should have stuck with the darkness. Ooh, I agree with you, Jerry. On August 1st, 2012, the band announced an indefinite hiatus via their Facebook page. <laughs> I really like how we've gone on a journey from Sonny Sandoval and P.O.D. sending out an email to fans, to their MySpace page announcements, to like yeah. Facebook posts. Yeah, here we are. Here the, we are. Here we are. Here we are. The next band is going to break up on Meta. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, no. Oh, man. Well, over the next three to four years, both Warfield and Braven would keep busy with various projects. But in 2015, She Wants Revenge was brought back to life. Tear You Apart was featured in the season premiere of the popular television show, American Horror Story Hotel. I think every season has a has a name and a theme. I don't know. I've never actually watched it, so Same. I have no idea I what I'm know. talking about. Right? Okay. I watched that. Okay. I, like every, they're like American Horror Stories, Taco Night. You know, they all have they just, like every season has a different name. I just don't know. I don't know why or what it is. I didn't even know that. Yeah, it's a thing they do, I guess. But so on. Hotel. That was the season where they fucking had, they began the season premiere with Tear You Apart by She Wants Revenge. And that resurgence in popularity is what brought the band back and on tour and even saw them release some new songs. Because that's exactly what the world needed. <laughs> well, non-album single Never was released on January 26th. 2016. There is no information on this song out there, but the art for the release seems to indicate this was a track from their self-titled debuts days, and it sure sounds like it. In fact, the song was 
definitely not included for a reason. It actually does sound like a beefier and slightly more like aggro turn on the bright lights era Interpol, a comparison that they no doubt wanted to avoid as much as possible and one that they got anyway. You know, they shouldn't have wrote that music. <laughs> <laughs> but just real quick, right, the album artwork is the same. It's the cover of their self-titled debut, which came out 10 years prior with just a gray 10 superimposed over the girl. Oh. Yeah, not very subtle, but I'm, like, I'm guessing that's what this is. It's got to be like, there's literally no information on the song, but it has to be from a song from the album's days that didn't get released, and now it's, you know. Ten years later. Exactly. Well, another non-album single was then released on November 9th, 2018. Big Love. Big Love sounds like she wants revenge, going full soft sell and Depeche mode in no uncertain terms. The unremarkable album art based entirely on a stock font looking word mark laid out the blueprint for what is now the e-com husk that is all that remains of She Wants Revenge. We'll get there soon. Yeah, they seem to be more into e-com than anything else nowadays. And they're doing that very badly too. Oh yeah. Well, the band continued to tour throughout 2019 and then in early 2020, the world changed. On January 19th, 2020, the CW's Batwoman starring Ruby Rose aired the episode How <laughs> Queer Everything Is Today, in which Batwoman came out as a lesbian. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I got my uh, notes confused. COVID. COVID happened. COVID became a worldwide pandemic. Yes, that's what happened. Not the uh, CW's Batwoman. That happened too, though. Anyway, both of those things did happen. But uh, it is the COVID thing that that kind of almost unquestionably led to the next part of She Wants Revenge's story. They broke up. For real, for real. I really hope there was a band somewhere that actually did break up because Batwoman is gay. <laughs> that would be amazing. I mean, a lot of guys made YouTube videos about how unhappy they were about it, so I don't fucking know. But um, anyway... You would think that they broke up because of COVID if you didn't dig much deeper than just the first page of Google. <laughs> but, you know, we were really getting there. We go to page like three. We go to the dark web, folks. But the fact is, She Wants Revenge broke up amid a storm of controversy. DJ Adam Braven had founded a nightclub called Cloak and Dagger. He co-founded it and ran it with Michael Patterson, a Grammy-nominated producer who worked on the soundtracks for The Social Network and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Cloak and Dagger has a dodgy and sordid reputation steeped in sexual assault and misconduct. And it even involves Thomas Middleditch from the HBO comedy Silicon Valley. Yeah, not so funny now, huh? Not so funny. <laughs> HBO. <laughs> It's must-see television. It's appointment TV. It's not TV. It's, it's HBO. <laughs> Is that their time? No, it was. That's how they became popular with the boomers. Braven himself was accused of not only turning a blind eye to harassment, but also exploiting employees. Like, it gets deep. He's, 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 he's been accused of... Of, 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 you know, like sexually exploiting employees, taking advantage of employees who had partners. It's, folks, it goes deep. You can look it up. We're not going to spend a lot of time going on it. Not to cover up and make excuses for it. I'm telling you about it right now, but it's just, 
It's bad. It's bad, and it's not what I want to dedicate. I don't want to have a ton of content warnings in this episode today, folks. I just don't. It's so, really, 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 really bad legacy. It is. It's not good. You can check it out. Adam Brave and Cloak and Dagger. Read all about it. The club did eventually shut down. And perhaps now is a funny time to mention this. <laughs> in 2012, Adam Braven was Barack Obama's personal DJ. Yes, President Barack Obama. About that. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I actually think that's fascinating stuff, to be real. What is a personal DJ? He did like five events. Oh, uh, okay. He wasn't like at Obama's gym workouts and shit. Like he wasn't like following around. That would be amazing. I don't know. Maybe he, he definitely like had to make playlists. He made playlists for Barry for Barrio. He made play. He's like, oh, I did my research. I know that he's from Chicago, and I looked at. He was like, I looked at his Spotify playlists. There you go, Adam Braven. Yeah, you can. Yeah, he's like, I. Oh yeah, I looked at Barack's Spotify playlist. I know he's from Chicago. What he's into? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, dude, yeah. So Adam Braven played like uh, at least five, if not more, events for Obama. Um, very funny stuff. Sweet. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Oh, both men, by the way, are still releasing music. How about uh, that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, Adam Braven has music out. Oh, bro. No, no, no. He has music out as recently as 2020 under his own name. It's very, oh, no, no. It's kind of cool until he starts singing and then it's just, oh, no, 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 no. And uh, he is very actively putting out music under the name Love, Ecstasy, and Terror, which. Yeah, that's actually what yeah. people were describing Cloak and Dagger when it <laughs> shut down. It's like OJ writing, like, if I did do it, this is how I woulda, you know? Like, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> amazing it's like, stuff. Yeah, just a little ecstasy and terror. Oh, gosh. I would like to point out that the name has no Oxford comma, so it's not love, ecstasy, and terror. It's love, ecstasy, and terror. How about that? <laughs> Grammar nerds, I see you. Oxford comma is important. Literally legal battles have been decided over the inclusion of the comma before the conjunction, but whatever. Anyway, back in 2013, Justin Warfield went back to rapping with his Black Hush Cult mixtape. Pretty cool name. In 2017, he released a full length with his other band, Dream Club, which features his wife, Stephanie King, on vocals. Aww. Justin Warfield does have... It's nice. <laughs> it's not good music. Justin Warfield does have new music coming out, allegedly, though updates seem to have stopped. The album might be called Warfield. Yeah, clearly a creative man. <laughs> good font. He chose good fonts. But anyway, beyond all that, as we alluded to, folks, if you were to visit She Wants Revenge's website today, you will find a soulless cash-in of an e-com site. Now, folks... Mm. Aside from doing this great show, I have a career in marketing. And I used to handle marketing for a streetwear company, a streetwear company called Mishka, or Mishka, you know, Brooklyn Mishka, M-I-S-H-K-A in English. It's a Russian word. It's a Cyrillic, spelled it in Cyrillic, but the name is pronounced Mishka. And anyway, I have a history here with clothes and how they're sold online. If you can't see this for yourself, folks, let me tell you. I, cause I can tell you this for a fact. The products on the She Wants Revenge store are all cheap, blank, basic-ass consumer products. They're just, they're just logo slapping. But, but I don't even mean that, that that's what you're going to get. I mean, that is what you're, you're going to get. 
but the actual econ images, the actual images being used to sell you the products aren't even the actual products. They are just blank. <laughs> they're just blank JPEGs from whatever, you know, wholesale thing they're getting the fucking products from. And they're logo slapped in Photoshop. That's a fucking vector you're looking at. The She Wants Revenge uh, logo. And that, that they just put that up there. <laughs> Yeah, it's also amazing that they're selling masks. Like, there's someone that's really keeping track and working on their merch still. It's Yeah, there's somebody, like, actually... It's, <laughs> that's such a great point. What if my folks... Don't go to the website expecting an experience. It's a cheap cash-in and an afterthought of a revenue stream. And that is She Wants Revenge's legacy. Bad merch. Yeah, and go that, buy a mask. <laughs> Go buy a mug. Go buy a black mug with a shitty, like, red semi-script hand style She Wants Revenge scrawled across it. Don't you want that, folks? That's that's She Wants Revenge's story. Isn't that fun? What an amazing and perfect storybook, storybook ending. Shitty merch. How about that? So fun. Well, let's get into the critical reaction, commercial impact, chart success, and fan response. All right. Critical reaction. Tell me about it. Well, She Wants Revenge's debut album was fucking torn apart. <laughs> That's my accent for today. By the critics. It was torn it was torn apart by the critics, folks. Well, you know, except for except for our friends at allmusic.com. They liked it. It's gotta cost like fifty bucks to get a good review on all music. It's got the bar. <laughs> It's the Better Business Bureau of Music Reviews. Yeah, fucking. I love you. And the Stephen bar has Thomas Erwan can be bought. I mean, the bar is so low if the goal is reviewing all music. I mean. Like, how are they going to, all the music? They definitely don't even have that. They definitely don't even have yeah, that. Yeah, well, how could they? It was a very impressive website when I was, like, when we were teenagers. But, you know, that was a while ago at this point. But anyway, Rolling Stone, folks. Rolling Stone gave it three out of five stars. And they said, in 1993, Justin Warfield released a soon-forgotten Prince Paul-produced hip-hop debut in which he leapt onto the hippie rap bandwagon four years too late. Now he's fronting She Wants Revenge, a retro goth pop duo that out Interpol's Interpol, deploying snippets of Joy Division, Bauhaus, The Cure, and other dark new wave acts with a precision that borders on parody. Full of one-note bass guitar plucking cheap drum machines, pointed rough sex poetry, and heavily haunted vocal mannerisms, the pair's debut provokes much hilarity, despite the serious intentions of its inspirations. Yeah, that pretty sub- that sums it up pretty much. What pretty a fairly pretty brutal. Pitchfork gave the album a five point nine out of ten. Not as scathing as I expected, frankly, but I very much connect with Pitchfork's assessment. Adam Warder writes. Warfield and Braven don't deserve bonus points for actually being teenagers during the eighties, as they suggest. They're studio rats who trouble and toil for the exact sounds necessary to propel their mediocre songwriting. See, what the fuck, Pitchfork? Like, how could you give an album a 5.9 out of 10 with a straight face and then say, say that? that? Yeah. Like, right. what? Right, right. Oh, you, the score should be lower. with the, this, uh, right. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. that is a scathing... 
Yeah, it's, 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 that's not even the whole review of the snippet. You know? Yeah, exactly. They're like, this is ridiculous yeah. and mediocre yeah. and fake. 5.9 out of 10. Which I isn't mean, a good review, but no. it's still like... But I'm honestly surprised uh, uh, Rolling Stone gave it 3 out of 5 when they said it's parody and it makes you laugh. Right. What the fuck? They're like, this makes you laugh. Like, then why aren't you giving it a two out of five or a one out of five? Why is it a three out of five? five. You're laughing at it? Yeah. (laughs) Like, that's a one. It's it's crazy. It's confusing. I don't understand. One out of five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess unless it's like an Adam Sandler or Weird Al record, you know? Right. Oh, no. No, but then you're laughing with it. Exactly. That's the deal. You're you're laughing at it. Good point. Good point. Good point. Good point. Good point. One star. It's crazy. No, it's absurd. I don't understand the connection between what they wrote and the number, the, the score they gave it. But moving on to something else that, oh, I mean, I get this, but goddamn, commercial impact. Well, yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, Bill Bud, Bill Bud the Boomer, BillBud.com confirms that according to Nielsen's sound scan, she wants Revenge's self-titled debut album has sold... 294,000 copies in the United States, which, um, man, that's definitely the worst any album we've covered has ever done. Even the Bravery self-titled debut went gold in the UK, which is at least 400,000 copies. Well, it all makes sense. It's the worst sales for the worst fucking song we've done. So there you go. (laughs) Oh, man. I mean, I love She Hates Me, and I think this is a better song than She Hates Me. Maybe it isn't. I don't no. know. I oh, <laughs> I love that you said it's not. I love you, Jeremy. <laughs> not even you. close. I love you so much. Oh, man. Oh, oh buddy. Chart success. Well, uh, you know, <laughs> the album did peak at number 36 on the Billboard 200. That's pretty impressive. Um it also peaked at number three on the top dance electronic albums and number nine on the top rock albums charts. That's all that it did. Not our most decorated album to cover. Tear You Apart, the single, peaked at number six on the alternative airplay chart. And it uh, got number got to number 22 on the, uh, <laughs> the bubbling under Hot 100 singles chart. It's again, not the most decorated single we've covered. <laughs> But so here we go, folks, because now we're going to talk about fan response, and we're going to see the disparity between that, right? It's something so severe, it's almost analogous to looking at the Rotten Tomatoes and the Metacritic scores today and seeing the disparity between the critic, the critic aggregate and, and the fan aggregate. So keep that in mind. This, this album, this song, did not sell well. It did not do super well on the charts. How about this stuff, folks? 21 million views on YouTube. That is no joke. Even in their next biggest songs, which they all have millions of views, by the way, they don't come close to tear you apart's numbers. But still, even them just having millions of views, just millions of views, what am I even saying? Like, that's crazy. <laughs> and it, you thought those numbers were big, by the way. 21 million views on YouTube? Tear You Apart has 59,160,292 streams on Spotify. The next biggest song of theirs, Red Flags and Long Nights, has 6,156,062 streams. So, wow. I don't even know what point I want to make first. While they do indeed get plays, it's very clear that Tear You Part is truly their biggest song by a long shot. But then the last point I want to make here is 
Did not do well on the charts. Did not sell crazy numbers. But look at those fucking plays and streams. I guess that American Horror Story spot on the television show in 2015 must have given some huge lift to this song. But like, damn, that's nothing to fucking sneeze at. That's an expression, right? I think that's finally the expression I got right. I don't know. Well, let's bring this horse home and... I mean, we can't make it fuck our wives, but anyway, let's, talk, let's get to segment three and talk about why this band is bad. She Wants Revenge is a bad band. They are bad because they are redundant. They add nothing to the conversation of music. This is a couple of guys having fun, having fun, having a laugh, having a good time, and that's it. Yeah, I mean, that's just the beginning. That's it. That is just the beginning. But remember, folks, we're not saying they're bad because of genre hopping. So let's get that out of out of our brains. I'm tired of people leaning on that. And and anytime you call an artist who's genre hopped bad, people are like, don't call him bad because he's genre hopping, even if you never predicated your argument on that. Let's get that out of the way, out yeah, of our the brains. The Beastie Boys. Done. Dude. And they did it well. over. Their hardcore records are dope, and their rapping is obviously dope. Like, and they're like in between. Yeah, stuff. those like really <laughs> crazy free jazz cookie, shit they did. Cookie like, Puss, Aglio <laughs> yeah. uh, and like all that yeah, other weird all that stuff. Weird shit. It's so yeah. Oh, uh, anyway. So we often try to isolate three key points to build an argument around, but today. We aren't going to do that. <laughs> it would kind of be too easy to point out the garish and gauche lyrics that are pitched so far into the space of bass, goth, Fifty Shades of Grey TV show BDSM. Well, you just did. I, <laughs> I just did, and that's, I'm going to leave it at that. I'm not going to base a whole argument around it. Right, right, okay. It would also be redundant to simply say that the music is uninspired and just point out how nearly every single steals the beat from an up-tempo Joy Division song and creep, cribs hard from Bauhaus's cover of Eno's Third Uncle. Well, you said that too, though. <sighs> I did just say that. But I'm not going to base the whole argument around it. Okay, okay, well. Okay, okay. But it would also be beating a dead horse to prattle on about Warfield's vocals, how he's clearly doing an amalgam of baritone post-punk vocalists. Well, at least give him credit here. This is the first project where I feel like he's found his voice mm. almost, and it isn't cracking and breaking, even though it sucks. Mm. He at least... <laughs> He at least seems marginally comfortable. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, and I listen, as we got into a little bit before the segment, folks, beating horses is not what we do here, especially dead ones. We don't even want to talk about that. We love, we love our horses, folks. We bring them home. Wow. We introduce them to our friends, wow. our family, oh, our wives, but we don't make them fuck our wives. We let it happen naturally. Yeah, kids. you can't make a horse say anything. <laughs> Consent is key. Kids, put your parents to bed. This is not a family show. Again, I think we've done this before, but you're supposed to say that before we say the fucked up shit. Oh, that is, that's one of those host things I keep getting wrong. Yeah, you keep getting that one wrong. Oh, isn't that fun though? Well, folks, she wants revenge. They give us nothing of any consequence. This is why they are a bad band. They give up. They are redundant. They add nothing new. They give us nothing of any consequence. So don't get it twisted. You can enjoy them. I very much enjoy their first records and parts of their third. Do you really? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yes, I do. We'll talk about it in a bit how I do. Hey, but listen, I also enjoy potato chips. But potato right. chips 
are nutritionally bankrupt food that doesn't add anything to my life in any way other than satisfying a superficial and unimportant desire for some snackable trash. See, I don't even like potato chips. You don't? No. So Whoa. I'm okay with comparing She Wants Revenge to a bag of crappy Lay's. <laughs> Fucking shitty Doritos. That's Maybe amazing. I just made all my other opinions less valid by having that opinion. But I'll tell you what, crappy lays sounds like my Tinder experience a year ago. Whatever. <laughs> wow. We're telling jokes here, folks. We're telling jokes. We're having fun. We're having a good time. So when it, when it comes to the question of art and what makes something art, what makes something valid as great art? There is nothing here with She Wants Revenge. And it's not just because the lyrics aren't good. It's not just because the music itself never really stands out. What is it? <laughs> it's that She Wants Revenge is just not essential. Yes. They are not a band that needs to be. They are not a band that covers new ground and expands the conversation. They are music fans who became musicians. They are not artists who have a message that needs to be told. And those things can be one and the same, just... Here they're, here they're not one and the same. She Wants Revenge is an example of authentic impulses seeming inauthentic due to execution and context, something we said before. And I don't believe, again, I don't believe they are bad because they are inauthentic. I think inauthenticity and enjoyment, quality, goodness, if we want to call that, that can, those, inauthenticity and goodness can live together. No, so I see those, I see, and I see those, those criticisms, by the way, think about things that live together. I see those criticisms that they're bad. They're inauthentic. I see those as sitting beside one another, living together. They are inextricably linked to one another, but it's not that one begot the other. They're not bad because they're inauthentic. They're not inauthentic because they're bad. Those are two separate criticisms that are very valid. However, I do see their inauthenticity. <laughs> as being part, just, it's not just part, but parcel of She Wants Revenge's poor quality. It really is a big part of it. <laughs> Listening to She Wants Revenge, it amounts to watching a fun horror movie that leaves you with no actual takeaway. You'll feel a thrill when delving into She Wants Revenge's best moments, but you won't walk away with a newfound understanding of yourself or any experience. She Wants Revenge is a Marvel movie. Again, it's popcorn fluff. It's good fun, but it's bad art. Right. That really hits the nail on the head. Except for Marvel movies have some mass appeal. <laughs> you know what they I mean? They have a lot of mass appeal. They have a lot of mass appeal. Not everyone is like, you, you know, she wants revenge as a Not coming oh, close man. over here. And hey, listen, listen. The, yes, it's fluff. It's fluff. It's fluff. And if, 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 if our hypothetical enemies out there, if your response to that is, so what, let people have their fun and enjoy what they enjoy, you're missing the point. Enjoy whatever you want, but be aware and be discerning. Don't just sit there and consume without reflecting and being critical, folks. Don't just shove soda and candy in your mouth without considering what you're doing. By the way, I fucking... Love Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love Hershey's Kisses. I love York Peppermint Patties. Candy is dope, but like, know what you're, just know what you're doing. When you're listening to trash, you can listen to trash. Just know, just know what you're doing. Smoke a pack a day too, whatever. 
Enjoy life. Just be aware of what you're doing. Critique is not telling you what to enjoy or how to enjoy it even. Sometimes it could be telling you how to enjoy something. That's more of a guide though. But critique is simply assessing and discerning when it's done right anyway. It's an intellectual activity. That's the big thrust of this show we keep trying to make clear and we hope y'all understand. Our our listeners understand. Our listeners understand. (laughs) But if that makes anybody angry out there, then I humbly suggest you must stop identifying yourself with and by the things you enjoy. Remember, you are above all art. Yeah, and also these are fucking our opinions, y'all. Oh, relax. Yeah, exactly. Just like relax. We got this, guys. It's going to be okay. <laughs> and just remember, as we like to say, the art you... I mean, we haven't said this since season one, and I think we only said it once, but here it goes. The art you love does not define you. You define it. Critiquing a product is not a personal attack, folks. Yeah, though you've got to be pretty fucking smooth-brained if you love Shivan's revenge. <laughs> so. But that's uh, my opinion. That's my opinion. This is just this opinion is of my own. Sometimes maybe this show could, this whole ep show could just be like the unpopular opinion subreddit sometimes. Or maybe it's the popular opinion. I don't know. Hmm, how about that? Well, let's talk about what makes this song great, folks. Good luck. <laughs> So technically speaking, this song is dripping wet. Oh, maybe I did write some horniness into it. <laughs> Not like that, folks. Kids, parents to bed. This song is dripping See, wet. After. That's a production. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I keep doing it. Uh, yeah. Well, this song, what do I mean by it's wet? For those who don't know, heavily produced. This song is at least 80 fucking percent production. I mean, okay, every song is production, but what? This song does well. What makes this song stick? Production. It's 20% a good song. It's 80% production, which is why you care about the song or why I care about the song. It's a nice song. But everything that turns people on so much about this song is how deft the production is. This is another part of what makes me feel that if this band came out now and were authentically, and they, and they were more authentically part of the fabric of Gen Z, I think that this band would pop off. They're all about setting the scene sonically. They're all about the vibe, the attitude. Yeah, it's a pretty weird, like, elementary school love story music video. Right, yeah. Which I don't really... Joaquin Phoenix directed that. Oh, that makes it weirder somehow. Oh, so that makes it so much weirder. Yeah, but I just don't get why dudes that age would make, like, a video like that. It's weird. I mean, the song, as I'll touch on in a bit, the song is is very much written from the point of view of, like, high schoolers falling in love. Right. Uh, They even reference being in school in the lyrics. Well, anyway, (laughs) you probably think, folks, that this is the personal analysis at this point. But no, 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 no. This is today's technical analysis, actually. Uh, it's already stretching. We call it that. <laughs> I'm not a professional musician. Just written some songs in my life. Had a band. Some folks have come to see. But from a technical perspective, this song is nothing remarkable. As it's written, the production is remarkable here. From a songwriting perspective, this song is fine. It, it's very tightly constructed. It's structured quite traditionally, and it gives you exactly what you want from it once you understand what you're ex- experiencing. There, there's really no curveballs, and I think that's a good thing. Except I, for the unenjoyment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, give us a moment, folks, and I'm going to explain to you why it might be enjoyable. I'm going to explain to you. I, well, that's why you're here, folks. Right? Well, I, so I will say, as a songwriter, this is the type of chorus I love, but it's not the type of chorus that's going to pop with the mainstream. And here's why. 
It's too wordy. It's too verbose. It's not a simple vocal hook. And hey, you know, we still see that. Lil Nas is industry baby. Lil Nas X is industry baby, which kit number one does not have a three word chorus or anything like that. But just something to know. Can't always pull that off. This song is simple, but it's not. And also this song is simple, but it's not necessarily simplistic. In fact, the lyrics do actually ask quite a bit of the listener. The verses are just as word dense as the choruses and they're delivered very pretty quickly and in staccato fashion. It's very easy to tune out and not pick them up if you're not really listening. I'll be on that detour just now. I want to come back to the production. The song begins in such a strong way. A strong way for those for whom this song is designed. What do I mean? Well. What do you mean? What do I, what do I mean? What do you mean? This song is no real hook. But it no. still, still can catch your ear. It has a beat that will instantly recall Joy Division's She's Lost Control and Bauhaus's cover of Brian, Brian Eno's Third Uncle. And, and after that creaking door spiderweb soundscape fades in. Oh, man. That will instantly recall Bauhaus's epic Bella Lugosi's Dead, the goth Stairway to Heaven. I'd also argue the beat from Bella also has influenced the song just a bit. Yeah, the whole song's goal seems to be remind you of some other song you may mm. have liked that was released 20 years prior. Mm-hmm. Record collector rock as the horrors uh, band I actually quite love got labeled with their latter-day albums. And not necessarily in a demeaning way, just an identifying way. Record collector rock, an interesting... Interesting concept. Interesting concept. It's like basically like when, when critics or hipsters make bands, you know? Yeah. By the way, if you want to talk about a master class in mood, if you have not heard Bauhaus's Bella Lugosi's Dead, you must listen to it as soon as this episode is over. You owe it to yourselves. It's a far more rewarding listen than Stairway. But back on track, the production and the choices made here regarding the soundscape and the tones and timbres you're hearing... This is what makes the song what it is. The arrangement is also pretty killer. One thing I love is how the bass takes most of the first verse with the guitar coming in for the latter half of the first verse. Then for the second verse, that gets inverted with the guitar leading and the bass coming in to add that punch at the end of the second verse. And then there's the wall of just haunting synths that softly shriek throughout the chorus. I love it. Yeah, I'm glad at least you like this song, man. (laughs) That's... I do. And I'm going to really get into why. Here's my personal analysis, folks. This is where Uh. things are going to get horny. Oh, my God. Well, let's get into this personal analysis. because I'm going to ask you a very pointed question once I'm done talking. (laughs) We talked about it a little bit before recording. You could probably imagine what it's going to be. But I won't get into it. I just really do want to hear your thoughts. But before we get there. Let's talk about it. Why do I like this song? Tell me. I say this is post-punk for people who fuck, which I mean, Uh. legit post-punk from back in the day had seemingly higher ideals than just sex, but kind of fuck that shit. I'm not, listen, I'm I'm not, definitely not saying this is high art, but let me tell you folks. I may be a soft boy. I may be emo as fuck in many ways, but I was never one of those goth boys who just wanted to read poetry, self-isolate, feel miserable, and have a romantic partner who is even more quiet than I am, who just wants to read books and watch The Nightmare Before Christmas all day. Right, you just want to watch The Nightmare Before Christmas in the morning. (laughs) 
how I start my day. I mean, yeah. I do love that movie, but it's just not like that. I don't make it my fucking personality. But no, 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 folks. I'm not. I was not that. I was and am a goth punk with a whole lot of glam rock in me, and that means I like people. I mean, I hate. I hate. Well, I hate people. <laughs> I fucking. I basically hate everyone until I'm given a reason not to. And I love my friends, just to be clear, and my partner. What's up, Anna? I think I'm still. Probably bleeping your name, but yeah, you know, just, uh, what the fuck's up, baby? I love you. If the listeners aren't paying attention to this Andrew's horniness and relationship <laughs> side story arc thing we got going on in this show, <laughs> you're really missing out. Oh. Also, hi. Hi, daddy. Yeah, we're really getting personal now. So listen, the folks, I, I like going out. I like having fun. I've done... I'm a goth kid who's done cocaine. You know what I'm saying? I like bass and primal things. And this is kind of the only intentionally goth music that is designed to be post-punk that also has an energy that says, yo, let's go out tonight and fuck. And hey, as a young androgynous, pansexual, glam, goth, punk boy in New York City at the time, 2006. I was, I was coming up. This was, my, this was my come up. This is exactly what I wanted to hear. And it's what I wanted to hear before going out, while I was out, and also once I, once I was back home with whomever I went home with. This is a song that made me at nine, 19, 20 years old think that, like, fuck, oh my God, the music I love is, like, actually popping off, isn't it? To the point where it's like, turning into dance music and uh, spoiler alert no it was definitely not, it was not the case but you know this was very exciting music for people like me at the time and it clearly still is Tw- 59 56 million streams on Spotify whatever it is 21 yeah, people million people love that song yeah God. 21 million views on YouTube weird and listen I never wanted She Wants Revenge or this self-titled album to be high art that's not what I went to it for. I, I went to it for some goth gossip girl energy, basically. These are songs about people hooking up with the, the heightened drama of a goth teen drama that's actually featuring nothing but, but 20-year-olds, basically. That's what this is. I'm not interested in the Twilight saga. That's what this is. I'm not, I don't want to watch Twilight even as hot as, as Pattinson is, and, and I forget the woman's name, the one who's praying Princess Diana. This, But... I don't want to fucking watch Twilight Saga. This is where I went for my goth trash as a kid. She wants revenge. The, the, the goth trash, trash, I stress trash. And I'm fucking happy about that. Also, I've read the lyrics. I get it. There's an element of terror to this song. I understand. But that's mostly in the delivery and the way the scene is set sonically. On paper, it's a very straightforward love song about kids. It's actually, in ways, I, I'm going to say it's just as sweet as Big Star's 13. It's just more honest. It's about carnal desires and not just, I want to walk you home from school. It, and if the chorus sounds intense to you, by the way, folks, and it is, I just listen, as long as everything's consensual, power play is cool as fuck. And hey, again, the song is not art, but I do think it's cool as fuck. That makes one of us. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but now I got to ask you, dude. We were saying earlier how you don't hear any sort of Interpol. Well, I didn't hear Interpol initially. Like, I didn't listen to the band. I was like, But you also love Interpol, right? Don't you? I love Interpol. I've seen Interpol more times than I can remember. So let me ask you two questions. One, 
do you or do you not sort of hear what people are saying when they say this is like schlocky budget Interpol? A That's thousand the first- percent. Oh, okay, you do hear that? Yeah, I hear it, but I didn't, I didn't initially hear it. It took someone saying Interpol for me to be like, oh, yeah, these are kind of the same. Like, for some reason, my brain didn't go exactly there. I'm not totally okay. sure why, but I think because it's so schlocky. Fair. Um, I think the main difference is sonically. That was the second question. I wanted to ask you where the separation. Yeah. Where is the threshold when like, oh, okay, I love Interpol. Oh, no, 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 no. I hate She Wants Revenge. Uh, From just like listening to it back to back, the the way the vocals are mixed. Oh. Paul Banks is so much deeper in the mix. It makes it feel like the focus is actually on the music. Mm. Um, It's four people. So they're each playing their own instrument. Yeah. You know, that comes across. The drums in She Wants Revenge feel super electronic and produced at times. They are. That's part of the point. It sounds super electronic and produced. And it's, uh, I don't know, they, they, that, yeah, the, the level of inauthenticity just came Too across glaring. so glaring that how could I compare it to Interpol, even though it's like definitely super similar, it's just a completely different game. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. That's I appreciate how, that, I man. That's how I feel. Well, there you go. That's it. I think, <laughs> I think that's it. And frankly, I think we actually somehow squeezed more juice out of this one than I thought we'd be able to, because this was not, yeah. not a lot going on when she wants revenge. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Fuck that well, if that is it, that is it. I think it's time to bid you, the folks at home, a good night and a farewell. So, folks, thank you for your time once again, as always. Stay strange, be kind, and love yourselves, folks. Yeah, this is easily the worst song we've covered. <laughs> like, Jesus fucking Christ. I'm so happy I never have to listen to this band again. Oh, I could just go back to living my life and not oh, having no. to fucking listen to this shit. I'm so <laughs> relieved. There's really not been a week that's like deeply upset me like this one has. <laughs> this is, really is me exercising my SM experience just with you, just putting you through it. This one was so bad. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, folks, thanks again. See you in hell, folks. Get home safely. Yeah. Maybe, maybe drink a cup of water. <laughs> 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 <laughs>